Well, good morning. It's great to share with you from Hebrews this morning. And we continue this journey through the book of Hebrews. And if you're joining us for the first time, you're especially welcome. We hope God speaks to you. But if you've journeyed with us through the book thus far, then we hope you're really valuing the journey we're on. And it's a hard book, if we're honest, to grasp. But as we do the homework and as we put the effort in, we realise that God wants to speak profoundly through this really rich text. And it's challenging, it's complex theology, because it's written to Jewish Christians over 2,000 years ago. And it's not written to the modern 21st century Christian. But nonetheless, there's so much we can take from this book. And it's not meant to be a theological argument, although talking to the Jewish Christians, they need to state, as the author of Hebrews, why the circumstances around the Jewish history is so important to them in that particular context. But it's not meant to be a theological argument. It's meant to be pastoral counselling. It does have practical advice, but the purpose is to point the readers towards Jesus, to help them understand Jesus and to build their lives upon Jesus and to realise that he is constant, secure and steadfast. That's why it's so rich, because it allows us to have a sense of who Jesus is in this crazy time that we find ourselves in. So we're going to turn to Hebrews 7 and it's worth saying this passage is particularly tricky. I'm not quite sure what I've done to upset Naomi who put together the briefs, but it's a particularly complex passage. But my hope and prayer is that God speaks to us afresh this morning. Why don't I quickly pray? Lord, we ask that your word would speak powerfully to your people this morning, individually and as a church family. Come and speak afresh, we ask. Amen. So we're in Hebrews 7 from verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Still with me? It's crazy, eh? It was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has come the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high treat, high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, but then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So what we can see in that passage is that I really need some new glasses. But anyway, I wonder how you're feeling in this season. And I wonder if you're like me, you're feeling slightly disorientated, struggling to know where true north is, struggling to know where we navigate and how we look to the future with anticipation and direction. 
A few years back, my friend and I were in Skye. This was before I'd moved to Scotland. And we went to Skye and we saw a mountain and decided just to go for it and climb it. So we went up the mountain. My friend had a bum bag. I tell you for no other reason and that's a complete fashion faux pas. But we got to the top of the mountain and we had a drink and a snack and we're looking at the views and we're really impressed with how quickly we'd climb this mountain. But then, almost immediately, the fog and mist descended. And some of you will know that experience where you've been in mountains and almost instantaneously, almost instantly, the fog and the mist descend and you feel completely disorientated. That's how we felt. We felt completely confused and you couldn't work out even five metres ahead where you were heading. It was scary. It was unsettling. Eventually, we found a path and got down the mountain and we managed to take a really long way back to our car, much later back than we'd hoped. We were safe. We were okay, but we felt completely confused. That might be how we are feeling at this time, where the economy, where the education, where the political system, where our job security, where our family situation can seem so unstable and uncertain, where we're not quite sure what tomorrow looks like, let alone the next few months. We can feel disoriented. We can feel like the mist and a fog has come before us. That's why in this time, as the readers of Hebrews were encouraged to do, we have to build our life on Jesus, who is steadfast, secure and able. Because this letter was written to the Jews who, the early Christians, the Jewish Christians, who knew their scriptures well. They knew the journey their ancestors had been on. They knew that God's people had a covenant with God and there was expectations, there was laws, there was commandments. They knew that there was regulations and things they had to adhere to. There was cleansing rules, there was rituals, there was expectations between them and God. They knew they had to sacrifice in order to be made clean and made whole before God. They knew that different tribes had different expectations, that the Levites were the ones who had the priests. They knew the 12 tribes, they knew their history. They knew that the tabernacle was where God dwelt and that God met with people and met the priests and the holy of holies to atone and account for the sins. They knew their story and that was so key to them. And now they were feeling completely disorientated because this Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews is saying is a central figure, has to somehow fit into this meta narrative, has to somehow fit into this story. How does Jesus fit in all these thousands of years ago? And they're unsettled because Jesus is being described in the order of Melchizedek. He's been described using these different metaphors and illustrations to help him understand who this Jesus figure is. So who was Melchizedek? Well, he was a king of Salam. So they're saying that Jesus is going to be the new king and the new priest. And Melchizedek appears in scripture on three occasions. He comes to Abraham in the book of Genesis and he brings bread and wine and he seals the covenant. He blesses the covenant between God and Abraham and also prophetically gives the bread and wine saying that one day one of your ancestors will be the son of God. As we look back, we see that incredible prophetic image. And then we see in the book of Psalms, we see in Psalm 110 that it says that the new priest, the new saviour will not be in the line of Levi who the Jews understood to be where the line of Aaron, the line of Levi would be their next priest. That was the understanding they had in their Jewish history. No, it would be the line of Melchizedek. Jesus would come in the line of Judah, not as a Levite. 
Now, this might not matter to you, but it mattered to God's people back then. It mattered to them because they were so convinced that if there was to be a saviour, it had to be in the line of the Levites. It had to be in the line of Aaron. And now we see on the back of that, that the fact that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek is now a hugely theological statement. That's what the author of Hebrews is building his argument upon. Because if Jesus is following the order of Melchizedek, as we read in this passage, it means that he's immortal. Because all the other high priests up until then had lived on earth, had lived lives with sin and brokenness, but they'd also died. And then a new priest had to take the place. But because Melchizedek was a heavenly being who came down as an angel, we realised that he was immortal. And so Jesus, too, was immortal. As he went to heaven, Jesus, too, was going to heaven to be with the father, to set the way for God's people to follow, to walk the path to heaven that was available to God's followers. And then in heaven, we see from this passage that he intercedes for us. Jesus is praying and cheering on his believers. But what's more, because he's tasted life and death and the challenges and the pains, he can feel for you. He feels the struggles you're going through this morning. He intercedes on your behalf because he cares for you. This term intercede means more than just to pray for us and to just to will us along. It also means to advocate for us. And we don't quite understand that the priest and judge would go hand in hand. But in this time, we can expect that the priest would have also been a judge. And Jesus being the judge meant that he was also the advocate. Recently, I watched the film Just Mercy, deep, just mercy, deeply profound and powerful. And we see Brian Stevenson, who is a total hero, who stands in the place of these individuals who are actually facing death row and accounts them and he advocates them and gives them a fair trial and stands before the judges and says, give them a fair trial. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He's advocating for us. It's rare someone is successful advocating for themselves, but Jesus is interceding. He's advocating on our behalf. Now, I've often felt that it's almost like Jesus is with his daddy up in heaven saying, go on, come on, give Harding a chance. Go on, give Andy a chance. I know that he stole cookies from a cookie jar as a kid. I know that he got his wife a tarpaulin for a birthday. I know that he's terrible his humor's awful he's got so many flaws but come on dad give him a chance and dad's like all right go on let him in then and then that's not what's going on here at all what's going on here is that jesus knows that his father is just he knows his father is just and he requires a sacrifice and because of my selfishness my pride my jealousy my lust and all those other things that i carry because all the sins that all of us carry on earth Jesus is pleading to a father. He's stepping in and interceding and saying, look, I want to show the way for the people. I want to offer myself. I know that your justice matters. I know that the system of justice and law matters. So I offer myself. I know that Harding deserves his punishment, but I offer myself. I want to stand in that gap. I know your law needs a sacrifice to atone for. Here I am, your son. The father sees a son and pardons us. He sees a sacrifice and forgives us. And you see in verse 25 that he's saving now. It's present tense. He continues to save. He's there. His sacrifice is there. 
continuing to save us, continuing to be in the gap and to offer us eternal life. Not because of what we've done, because of what he's done on the cross. It needed a sacrifice. And as we see in this passage, it was a sinless, holy and blameless sacrifice. It was Jesus. It was his life given for us. And it was once and for all sacrifices, as it says in this passage, it happened once and for all so that we know the way to be the father. We don't have to keep going back to the tabernacle. We'd go to Jesus once and for all. We meet his father in heaven. We can follow his path. He shows us the way to the heavenly tabernacle. How incredible is this? That our past is forgiven. He's with us today. The gospel is for us today. And our future is secure and our future is with Jesus in eternity for those of us who follow him. That's our hope and identity, not in what we've done, but in what he's done. But there's also further incredible truth in this really rich passage. You see, every metaphor, every description of Jesus will have shortfalls and will have gaps. But this gives us a glimpse of Jesus because in the same way that God is not an actual literal rock. When we talk about God being a rock, we're not saying he's actually a rock. But Jesus is being described as a high priest. And we've heard about this in other weeks, but Jesus is being described as a high priest. And the high priest would have been clothed in majestic outfits. They would have had rubies and silver and gold and jewellery all over them. And Jesus came as a high priest saying that I give you my everything so that you can take my place. Christ in me, in the child that I created in God's image, I created you. I am well pleased, as it says in the Gospels. I'm here in all my beauty and all my power and all my majesty for you, because that is the image I want to bestow upon you. That is how I value you. That is how I see you. That is how I love you. Christ in me, all this majesty and beauty. This isn't us slipping through the black door. This is us, God, the Father, seeing us as he sees his son, Jesus. Seeing you in all the incredible beauty that he sees his son, Jesus. You see, this changes our identity. This changes our security. This changes our stance because we recognize that God so loves us. But because he sacrificed himself for us, because he advocates for us, because he's immortal, because he went to be the father, he gives himself the pure, spotless, blameless lamb and says, this is my child and I want to give everything for them. So follow in my path to the heavenly tabernacle. I love Andy. I love the people watching this morning. I've given my everything for them. You see, we can so easily look at the gospel in almost a negative way and say, that, oh, thank God that he's my righteousness and my holiness and my worthiness. And that is all correct. That is all accurate. But the gospel is as much for us as Christians as it is for non-Christians. Because as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's a denial of the faith to say, but I'm not good enough to follow Jesus. I'm not good enough to follow the author and perfecter of my faith. Because it's never meant to be about us. It was always meant to be about his beauty. It's always meant to be about his power, his grace working through us. It was always about him, Christ in me, the hope and security I have because of that. In order to fully embrace the incredible gift and grace we have in Jesus, 
We have to realise our vulnerability and utter dependency on God. You may have heard this message thousands of times, but are you really building your life on the security and power that because of Jesus's beauty in us, we possess the freedom in Christ we have? That is where our identity is formed, not from striving to be a better mother, not from striving to work harder. When so much seems uncertain, we recognise it's because of what Jesus did on the cross that our hope is secure, that he considers us to be beautiful and in the image of God. I'm enough, you're enough, not because of anything I've done, because of who he is, how he came to earth, lived, died and rose again. I've got a son called Jensen and he's six years old. And what's very obvious is that the most important thing we can do is to help him understand that we love him, that we care for him, that we value him, that we cherish him. And if he understands that he has a purpose and a hope in Jesus and that he's cared for and loved, then he will flourish. He'll be all he can be for Jesus. I'm a broken earthly father. How much more for the heavenly father to look at me, to look at you and to say, I love you. You are enough. My sacrifice was everything you need. My beauty, the eternal beauty of Jesus is in you. Your identity is formed in Jesus. Build your security, build your hope, build your future on that. When everything else feels disorientated and confusing and broken, we fix our eyes on Jesus and trust that he's got us. We trust that our hope, our security and identity is built on him. We might be looking around now and trying to navigate without a map, without knowing the true north. But we turn to Jesus and look to him and he shows us day by day that he's been there. He's gone before us. He lived and died and rose again for me and for you. He advocates on our behalf. He sacrificed himself for me and for you. He's immortal and lives forevermore so that we too can have eternal life with him. And he goes to be with his father as in the order of Melchizedek, because he wants to show us the way to show us the path that we too can take as we follow in the line of Jesus. Jesus came to give us life in all its fullness. But it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about what I can do. It's about what he can do. It's about his grace living through me. How freeing is that in a time where there's so much uncertainty and instability? Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for anyone who's perhaps hearing about you for the first time. I pray that they would know you in a new and powerful way. I pray that you would literally meet them right now in their houses, wherever they're watching, and they would encounter you for the first time today. But for those of us who've been Christians many for many years and have perhaps heard this message so many times, I pray that we would once again just trust our life in you. We'd once again remember that in you, we build our life, that you live in us. Holy Spirit, come and have your way, we pray. Amen.